six, five, four, three, two. Hello, this is Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. Uh, my name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. Later on in the podcast, I'm going to be talking to science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson about his forthcoming book, Aurora. And we'll also get to Game of Thrones and some of the news that came out of Apple's WWDC this week. But first, I think it's time we had a little conversation about scientific fraud. There's been this ongoing, very high-profile retraction by a researcher uh, named uh, Michael LaCour. Um, and uh, it, you probably have heard of this study. I think he was even interviewed on This American Life. Um, but essentially what had happened was um, he'd, he'd published a study about how attitudes on gay marriage could change a lot faster than anybody had previously thought. Um and it was unusual in part because it was such a, a resoundingly stunning finding. Usually it takes a long time to change people's attitudes about anything. That's something that's pretty well known in social sciences. Mm -hmm. um, but this seemed to really sort of engage people, um, particularly because obviously this, these changing climates uh, have been going on for the last 20, 20 years or so. So... You know, this was like front page news. Um, and it turns out that there was probably a great deal of fraud involved in this finding. Uh, and the thing that's most interesting to me about it is that somebody who really liked uh, the work was was one of the people who found it out. Uh, it was this um, mm -hmm. graduate student whose name was David Brockman. Um, and he had sort of seen some of this these findings before the research was published mm -hmm. and had gotten very excited, wanted to design a follow-up study. And so he started to um, look into the design, basically, of how how this study had been run. Um, right, because, I mean, my first question would be, how do you measure attitude? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not very steeped in social sciences and how you do that kind of study, but that seems like a very, um, a very soft metric to measure. So um, what they did was it, basically the finding was that a 20 minute conversation can change people's attitudes about same sex marriage. Hmm. Uh, and the, what they what they did was there was a uh, allegedly and this this doesn't seem to be true. There was a door to door campaign where people were talking to people and then voters um, who had been canvassed. Uh, about their attitudes on marriage, who had had these conversations, shifted by about twenty percent in favor of same-sex marriage equality. Okay. So that's that's a pretty stunning finding, right? That you can go door to door, have a conversation with someone, and change about twenty percent of people's minds. Right. So, but that's on one kind of decision, like a vote, right? I mean, right. I, I just feel like. The idea of attitude is such a multi-layered thing. Like you can you can say, yeah, I'll vote, I'll vote in in favor of same-sex marriage, but then still have a lot of like harboring prejudices that you could still be holding on to, even if you vote one way at one point. Oh, I don't disagree at all. I just think that um, in terms of something like this, any kind of quantitative measurement, you have to sort of pick something that's artificially thin mm -hmm. uh, because it's very very hard to 
measure all of the complexities of attitude, totally. as I'm sure you well know. So you, you pick something that is sort of very something that's easy to measure basically <laughs> yeah. and hope that it's a good stand in for the other more complex things that you can't really quite measure as well. Um, so anyway, you know, this was, this was big news front page of the New York times segment on this American life. And so Brookman, who's like 26 at the time, I think starts to think about, okay, how do I do my own version of this study? How do I get canvassers? How do I, how do I, you know, make this happen? And he realized that the the money involved couldn't possibly have been right because the figures that he had seen suggested that there were about 10,000 respondents who were paid about $100 each. That's huh. a, a million dollars, which is a huge funding for a study. And usually studies, especially in social science, don't, don't get that much money. Um, that's like – that's drug company study money, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. uh, so it didn't make sense. Um, and he dug a little bit more – and found, I mean, there was like a 27-page report where they released all of the irregularities, and the next day the journal retracted the the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that's exciting to me about this, and, and we actually have a story about this on The Verge that was written by um, Adam Marcus and Ivan Aransky, who run the blog Retraction Watch. There's like a whole uh, blog dedicated to scientific retractions huh. and fraud. So they're the experts in fraud. It's a blooper reel of science, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I read it pretty religiously um, mm-hmm. because it, it, it's helpful for me in figuring out uh, when I'm judging a study what I need to be looking at. And you can't always get it right every single time, but right. you can start to know where the red flags are. Yeah. Um, so this is a bit unlike a, a previous high-profile fraud case uh, by a guy named Anil Potty, who was a rising star at Duke. Um and he had done this, these studies of cancer genetics that had been very, very exciting. And then, um, you know, statisticians were questioning his work for a while before people realized he had faked his resume. Um, he had he had essentially um, faked a Rhodes scholarship. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Um, and that was his his undoing. And the difference between the potty case and the liqueur case is that people this time when the statistician said, yo, this seems wonky, uh, people listened. And then on top of that, it turned out that uh, liqueur had made up sources of funding and and prizes on his resume as well. Wow. So I, I guess my my main question about the story and specifically about the gay marriage story is like, what you know? It just feels like such a kind of uh, a blow, especially when the findings of the story and the intentions of the person who's doing this fake study seem to be pretty good, right? Like, is that is that? I mean, he's what was his goal in in uh, I guess faking the study or coming to a conclusion that maybe wasn't quite there with what he had? Well, it's hard to say, but one of the things that I do think is the case that is that there's um, a real pressure to publish in order to get a job basically oh, totally, yeah so what you're seeing is people who are either committing fraud or and this is a whole other can of worms that we should open some other time uh buying publication um hmm. in order to get enough credits on their on their resume to get to get a job and also that sort of thing matters in terms of securing funding for yourself in the future um there's a, a limited amount of research funding available. It's been essentially flat or declining 
probably for the last decade or so. Uh, so it's very hard for young researchers to crack in. And I imagine if you're unscrupulous, um, it it then becomes incredibly tempting to make something up so that you can at least get your career started. Right. So I suspect that that probably plays a role. Um, I'm just surprised but, that doesn't happen all the time. Then, <laughs> you know, the it's like faking is, it, a resume it, on your like out of college. Like, oh yeah, I worked at a bank oh totally. For two well, years. so the thing is, I think it might. Um, yeah. And one of the things that's that's very cool um, that that Adam and Ivan wrote about is that there is now a move for post publication review by statisticians and others to make sure that papers actually are good. And then they can they can double back and, and contact the journal and say, hey, we found these things that, that aren't quite right. Uh, maybe this needs to be retracted. So mm. there is there is sort of a self-correcting movement here. But the circumstances that are being set up are such that there is a lot of incentive to cru- t- to basically make stuff up. Yeah. And it's hard to figure out what the best way to to, to handle that is because the, a lot of the scientific method is based on assuming that people are basically trying to be as honest as possible. Hmm. So this is something I think we're going to be seeing um, a lot more discussion about in the the coming <laughs> weeks, months, and probably years. Is it just that it's easier to look up stuff and fact check stuff now that you have like records like the internet that are easy, more easily searchable than that's you know. definitely part of it. Yeah. And I think also the fact that statisticians are becoming increasingly important in figuring this stuff out that that scientists have begun listening when the statisticians say, hey, this seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's that's something that seems positive to me, too. Um, but one of the things that I do want to make sure that, that people know is that, you know, science is not based on any one individual study. It's based on sort of the finding, the impression, overall impression from a pack of studies. So even, you know, having a couple of fraudulent studies get pulled doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't trust the whole of science because right. what you're looking at is is not one particular study but like the cumulative effects of several studies it's kind of like the difference between you know one brick and a brick wall right um each study is a brick yeah well, we should um, move on. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, try, I'm sitting here trying to think of like a segue, a decent segue. I mean, <laughs> what about walls? Let's talk about walls. Just like, yeah, walls, bricks, um, like uh, big walls in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, we're we're on the eve of the last few days before the fifth season finale of Game of Thrones, which um, we have been both you and I following. Um, it is both of ours, I would say one of our favorite shows on television right now. Would that you say that's accurate? Um I'd say that's accurate. Okay. Uh and it's been uh you know, we we talked about it, we recorded a conversation about it for our first episode and I do not believe it made the final cut just because of timing. But um, you know, some of the stuff we talked about last week was just about um the brutality of this season. And I guess in a way it's sort of you know the 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 idea of making stuff up for a desired effect. Um, not the Brandon Flowers album, which I also listened to this this week. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but just to to, to for certain ends, um, which is sort of the position that Benioff and Weiss, uh, David Benioff and DB Weiss, have been in uh, this season, where they've really gone off book from the story, and they've been. And I was talking in a meeting with with uh, some people from The Verge about how. This is like the first time we've really gotten to know them as storytellers because they've had this much leeway. And what we've learned about them as storytellers isn't always the most flattering thing in the world. But um, 
and this week we had another particularly brutal episode. And, um, you know, we talked last week after the now very infamous um, Sansa rape episode, which is like a very crude way of putting it. But that's obviously the thing that people are talking about the most after that episode. And now we've just seen uh, another young beloved character um, this time get murdered or burned at the stake. Um, And I was wondering, I just wanted to check in with you and see how you're doing with the show. See uh, see how you're holding up. (laughs) Well, so... Here's the thing, um, and we talked about this last time, but for the benefit of of our listeners, I'm just going to say it one more time. I don't expect Game of Thrones to play nice. Like, Mm -hmm. getting mad at Sansa's rape when the series kicks off with a pretty brutal rape of Daenerys doesn't... I mean, like, yeah, okay, it does seem aggressive, and it does seem exploitative, um, and I, I don't think that we needed to have it happen on screen, but at the same time, like we already knew what we were in for, you know, right. like this is, this is well within the, the show's purview. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like it comes down so much to a question of taste, right? Like right. it's, it's not, I don't think you can put a moral judgment necessarily on what the show is deciding to depict. Right. Um, because it's at the end of the day, it's fiction. It's just like, okay. This is the world that they want to create and spend time in, and that's a choice that they made. There's yeah. nothing that told them that they had to make do that with the story. And so it comes down to, like, if that's not for you as an audience member, then that's fine. But I yeah. don't think that's a moral judgment necessarily. But that's me being incredibly neutral about Right. Well, so, you know, and also as somebody who... Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of um, classical Greek poetry, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is basically all rape all the time. Yeah, um, and also um, I was thinking of of you remember um, the Trojan War? I think it's Agamemnon who sacrifices his daughter to the gods so mm-hmm. that he'll have smooth sailing. Yeah, and then his wife murders him uh, when he gets back home. Yeah, um, so I was sort of having flashbacks to that. I actually didn't. I was not particularly astounded at that scene. It didn't, like, it didn't, I know that people, it upset a lot of people. I know it upset people on our own staff. Uh, to me, it didn't strike me as as being especially beyond the pale, especially given <laughs> We've seen that we, so much. Yeah, and also it's, it's Stannis. It's the same kind of, well, I can't possibly go back because that indicates a defeat because I'm stupid. Um, because you know what sometimes you have to retreat that's just the way it works sometimes like yeah. you save yourself and fight another day not a big deal you have to wait the whole winter like that was a big I mean I don't know I was with Stannis up until then I have to say I was a mm-hmm. secret Stannis supporter but but yeah I mean so you know um, I I thought it was a bit weird the thing that did strike me as being a bit weird is after all of that sympathy that Stannis had for his daughter had been established, that he would do anything for her, all of that, that the character that we see break is, in fact, his wife, who has been nothing but unsympathetic towards right. her throughout the entire the entire series. So that struck me as kind of a weird choice in terms of character development, but okay. Well, it's setting um, it up. She's going to murder him. So yeah, we, yeah. Um, we're going to have some straight Clytemminstra stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, none of the, on paper, a lot of the stuff that happens on Game of Thrones is no more gnarly than, yeah, most stuff that you're, is required reading in high school for people. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just, uh, it's the choice to hang out there, I guess, that I think some people are second guessing right now, which is everybody's totally within their rights to do. But, um, I mean, I am still very 
um, eager to find out how this season ends. And I love now that nobody, like, not there, there aren't a bunch of book readers that are kind of lording over some kind of knowledge of just wait till you see the red wedding it's gonna blow your mind oh you haven't seen anything yet i don't want to say anything but yeah i mean it's sort of fun now it feels like um it's a level playing field yeah well it's like more a pure television experience as opposed to this like very very complicated um adaptation which is uh you know i'm trying to think of the last time that there was like a very you know i guess i mean i guess breaking bad so not that long ago. Never mind. <laughs> I can think of it. Uh, well, so, you know, one of the things that I do want to talk about, though, when we talk about jumping away from the books is the hard home scene. Um, oh, yeah. Which was just some glorious television. I loved it. I loved it so it much. It was really, and really great. It, it it doesn't occur in the books at all. And yeah. often a, a lot of I, I read a lot and um, often good for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> But often books I like get adapted and I, you always see people get mad. Well, you know, the book is better. True, but the book's a different medium, you know? Yeah. And sometimes the things that work really well in books don't work really well on the screen. And Hard Home is a perfect piece of TV. Totally. Yeah. And I think I think the flip side is actually something like, um, even though this didn't happen in the books, apparently, the Shireen thing. But um, on in the books, if we were reading, you know, we would be able to get much more of a sense of the inner life of characters then a decision like that maybe would feel like it was earned more than, yeah. you know, after, you know, three major scenes involving this arc of Shireen and her dad, like it it kind of all collapses um, somewhat without, I mean, not without warning, but it just sort of like, it just happens, you know, as opposed to feeling like something that we have, we get to think about and the characters get to think about for a while. Right. We don't see Santa struggle with the decision, which he almost certainly would have been doing in right. the book. And yeah. in part because that's not interesting television to watch, you know. Yeah. Just, I mean, what, he's going to look like he's concentrating really hard. He always looks like that. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just Stannis. So, um, yeah, the, the finale is, is this weekend, as I'm sure anybody who cares knows. And, um, you know, we might get a chance to, to do a little download on it uh, a couple weeks from now when we have our ne- next episode. But... Um, certainly the, the TV highlight of the week. Um, I did also want to talk real briefly and, um, I'm sure that I might even go on, who knows, I might even go on the Verge cast this week, do something crazy like that uh, (laughs) to talk about, uh, uh, WWDC, the, the developers conference that Apple holds and, um, which was this week, and the announcement slash unveiling of Apple Music, which is something that we knew was coming for a while, and now we kind of have all the details about what it is, which is basically Apple's competitor to Spotify and Tidal and any other, and apparently RDO, which some people use. Um, Um, So (laughs) I have been literally... uh, on a hill in the middle of rural Ohio for uh-huh. the last several days. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Tell me about Apple Music. Oh, man. So I thought you were going to say something about streaming because uh, being on a hill in rural Ohio is one of those places where sometimes streaming music isn't the best answer. Um, <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. I mean, so I I was one of those people who just got Spotify premium as soon as it was available. And it was like, great, I can listen to anything I want to whenever I want. The time I was living in Seattle, um, most of that involved 
listening to stuff at my desk at my job and walking around and streaming stuff and racking up, you know, pretty nasty data bills as well before things were <laughs> unlimited. Um, the, Apple, I mean, I still continue to download music, though, and um, I still found it convenient and sort of like sort of like a mark of like a vote of confidence or something to actually purchase an album to download, um, whether that was on Amazon or uh, iTunes. And now it's obviously much more on iTunes because I have an iPhone now and it's all like, well, that's I mean, I could go and buy something from Google Play or Amazon, but it makes it very, very difficult for you to to, to go out of the system uh, that Apple has started to create around buying content and playing it on your devices. It's all kind of this interwoven thing. So I wrote something kind of about that idea um, after after the announcement was made um, because, you know, one of the uh, – essentially one of the benefits of Apple doing their own service is that it's all interlinked in with the iTunes store as opposed to something like Spotify where you stream and then that's the end of it. There's no other point of purchase after that. Um and there's just some, I mean, they're also integrating all this kind of artist, like they're trying to basically have artists put all their Twitter feeds and, and, and social media activity within the interface of Apple Music so that that's how you also follow artists that you like. You follow Rihanna and like you get a new video from her, which is similar to the stuff the title did doing. But basically just trying to make this entire process of discovering music, trying music, uh, you know, listening to music on the radio, which they've started this um, radio thing as well, uh, Beats One Music, and that's all now controlled by Apple. There's a way that you can you can go from fig- like learning about an artist to buying their music all under Apple's umbrella. And I just think that that's really... That's... You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love it. I don't love that future, necessarily. Um, but I also come, you know, from you know, buying CDs and and amassing a record collection and having that no, totally. define your personality in some way. So, um, yeah, as like the obligatory, like grumpus who like doesn't necessarily love all new technology. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I love best about collecting records, because I have a record player and I, I have records and I have a nice sound system set up for that. Uh, is that there's an element of randomness and chance. You know, there's nobody flagging me to be like, oh, you love Tom Waits. Here's the new Tom Waits album. It's really digging through a bin and, you know, sometimes just buying something based on the cover alone because it's $5 and you're like, well, you know, this is probably going to be $5 well spent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, there's so many things I have like that that I've I've spent money in, on over the years. And I remember even on my iPod, like even... You know, that's when everybody was like, oh, you can't hold it in your hands. You can't hold the album in your hands. I mean, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about just like having a collection that is yours. And like that includes a lot of weird things that you kind of dig around and find and rip to your computer. And, and you know, it, it all gets digitized eventually, but at least like it's something that you built, you know? Yeah, it's yours. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Um, one of the things that I do with records is I go to estate sales um, and just buy boxes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's my, my collection is actually pretty random, but that's been cool. That's yeah. been really exciting, you know. Um, I have a whole bunch of classical music that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise that I wouldn't have even known to have gotten um, yeah. as a result of this. So, yeah, and that's a completely unmoderated by anybody, whether that's like Apple or whether that's a record label that's paying to have 
Like, nobody paid to put those records in front of you, whereas almost any way that you discover music on any platform now, somebody paid to have that person there in front of you. That's exactly right. Um, And I think that maybe one of the things that worries me about what you're saying about Apple Music is that it sort of strengthens uh, record companies in a way that might not be great for artists uh, yeah. because artists, individual artists can't necessarily fork out the cash, the payola, if you will, mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm seeing that they're putting out new albums. Um, and that's not the case for record labels. So, you know, a, a, as terrible as record labels have kind of been in some ways to artists, and I'm thinking specifically around like CDs and how much of a chunk of the CD profit they kept. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that we want to strengthen them any further. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I think I think a lot of that promotion and the stuff that gets it onto a service like iTunes or or you know. Um, or even just on a on a radio uh, cycle or anything like that. I mean that. I mean I've known people who've been who've done music before, like you know at a very low level, and that is one of the biggest hurdles um, is getting promotion because um, you have to pay for that. You have to pay for marketing, um, and, you know, unless there's some cra- you have some crazy like discovery uh, fairy tale story, like you have to pay your way to get that to get. Um, a company to send your copies of your CD to a million different publications so that they can throw it in the trash. Like, um, <laughs> Right. And wasn't that supposed to be the big promise of the Internet is that it would be a leveling field for beginning artists who could then be discovered? Yeah. Like, wasn't that originally the thought that yeah. this would be something that would be great and for it, artists and terrible for labels? And I think it was for I mean, I think it I think it continues to be. And it is, I mean, through places like iTunes or not iTunes, uh, YouTube and um, and SoundCloud, to which is also kind of a little bit problematic, and 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 Bandcamp is like probably the best example of that. And and Tidal has a service that is somewhat like Bandcamp within its system that artists can upload stuff to. Um, but you know, it still it still feels very moderated by a company that obviously has a lot of vested interests in other things. And I don't know if I was a musician, a starting out musician, I wouldn't necessarily entrust. Apple to my fate as an artist, but um, that's me being being suspicious. Um, we should probably uh, uh, get to your guest real quick, but um, I know you, uh, there was something, or you kind of wanted to tie it into something else from this week. As far as <laughs> I did, because we're you know now while we're talking about artists and creativity, there was uh, a study that was published this week that I saw covered pretty badly. Um, and so I just wanted to, to counteract that a little. Um, and it, there's this ongoing myth and it predates any kind of scientific study that being crazy makes you a better artist. Um, uh-huh. and I don't think it does. That's, that's my personal opinion. That's not like a scientific established fact. I, I feel like if you're mentally ill, it's possible that you're so mentally ill that you actually cannot produce your best work and whatever you're producing is despite yes. <laughs> Just Despite your mental define illness. Define the mental illness because, you know, some right. definitely work better than others. I would right, say. exactly. So there's been this, this has been floating around 
Gosh, I mean, minimum since the 19th century and probably before the idea of the mad genius. Yeah, like and, romanticism and all that. Mm-hmm. And there have been a bunch of studies um, throughout the years that have sort of found links that that are sort of highly circumstantial for a variety of reasons, including that they're uh, looking at people for whom um, artistic careers, whether it's writing or music or, or making visual arts or movies, um, are their main source of income, which are not all artistic and creative people, obviously, uh, especially if you're a poet, because you really need a day job if you're a poet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I do full time poetry over here. Oh, like, oh. <laughs> we're serious like that. Uh huh. Um, but so. Uh, there was this study that came out from Decode Genetics, which is an Icelandic com- uh, company that basically has genomes for just about everybody in Iceland and can do some pretty good sophisticated genetic analysis on them. But this one seems kind of bogus. It came out in Nature's Neuroscience, and it suggests that uh, genetic variants um, that, that can be used to predict bipolar disorder and schizophrenia occur uh, more often in people who have creative occupations, so people hmm. who are uh, visual artists or dancers or musicians or writers or actors or whatever. And um, again, you know, the 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 finding itself is kind of thin. Like if right. if we were to talk about you know the the contribution, it's it's the the metaphor the, is the like, causality if, seems weird, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, the, the the metaphor is like you know if we were go- if you and I were going to go a mile, uh, this would get us like thirteen feet, which uh-huh. is you know I mean it's not nothing, but it's certainly not even half a mile. It's yeah. not, it doesn't come close to explaining um, creativity. So I just wanted to very quickly. Uh, make sure that people know that when they see these sort of sexy headlines about how creativity is linked to mental illness, it's a lot more complicated than that. And um, it's very tempting for people to to put that headlight on it because we're already sort of primed to believe that we've been driven mad by the muses, you know. Right. Um, and so from there, I want to talk a little bit <laughs> about creativity, um, specifically around uh, the science fiction author who I like very much named Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, and he's got this new book called Aurora coming out. Um, it's going to be out July 7th. So next month. Um, and he is a major, major uh, force in the science fiction world. Um, he has this this trilogy called the Mars Trilogy. Um, and at least... You know, it was really influential. I think it was written in the 90s. And one of the books is actually on Mars, believe it or not, uh-huh. um, as, as part of an artifact um, we sent there. So this is this is a pretty serious person. And he one of the things I like about the way that he writes is he clearly reads um, science news. And so yeah. he does, uh, if you'll forgive me for a moment, hard science fiction. <laughs> oh, um, man. How many arguments <laughs> have I had about hard science fiction? <laughs> I, I'm incapable of saying that phrase now without thinking about Party Down. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, not, not dragons. Not dragons. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, um, what's what's exciting to me about his work as somebody who writes about science is that he's very good at thinking about the realistic possible limitations of what we can do because a lot of science fiction is more interested in sort of building this world and not thinking about like what is actually feasible. Right. So Aurora, this book is about the um, first human mission beyond the solar system for colonization. And the setup is that the people in the, 
when we arrive to the book, the people have been in the ship for generations. They've been over 100 years towards this um, Earth-like planet that was discovered. They're one of several um, other missions that have also attempted to do this. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And so we're following basically the uh, the children of the children of the children of the people who volunteered to be That's there. Nuts. So uh, I actually talked to Kim Stanley Robinson, who goes by Stan. Fun fact, uh, much as I byline as Elizabeth and go by Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we had a really great talk, uh, not only about science and science fiction, but also about literature, because it turns out that he is a a pretty big geek for a lot of the classics. And so he talked a little bit about um, how authors like John Dos Passos have influenced him, um, in addition to people like Isaac Asimov. Uh, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Um, so I, I just wanted to start, um, I guess, uh, by uh, <laughs> by saying one of the things that I've enjoyed about your fiction, um, and I've I've read the Mars trilogy and uh, twenty three twelve in addition to Aurora, um, as somebody who who writes about science for a living, ah. is that um, you do seem to have a pretty good grasp of what's going on in the literature. So I wanted to start by asking you, um, what do you read? What do you, what do you use to sort of keep track of? Um, What's going on in in some of the physical science developments that that then become fodder for your work? Well, my main source is science news. Um, you know, it's the periodical. It comes every two weeks now. It used to be every week back in the day, and it comes in the mail. I just read it as a a skinny magazine um, on a regular basis. I've done that for about thirty five years, so that has been a very good education. They're a wonderful magazine they're meant for the lay person but they're written by experts mm-hmm. and um they're good at it they're good at finding that uh, balance between the technical information load uh, combined with a lay person's ability to comprehend an interest level so they go to all the conferences and they'll be t- i don't know if you know science news i do yeah okay well then you know so that's been great. And then I also I have a wide variety of friends and acquaintances in the scientific fields that are of interest to me that I've worked up through the years. And then once I get interested in a project, I um, research it by – I like books, but the Internet's gotten better and better and better. So I just kind of link around on the Internet and find what I need to find. And that was somewhat of the uh, – inspiration for 2312, along with John Dos Passos's USA trilogy, I was noticing how much he had sort of pre-invented uh, Wikipedia in a way. <laughs> yeah, um, where he has those sort of newspaper excerpts and the headlines, um, yes. which yes. you very much used in that book as well. Absolutely. I It was modeled on Dos Passos's USA and explicitly so, with a lot of changes made to sort of indicate to me you know, the new versions of these things. So instead of newspapers, it was whatever, extracts, et cetera. And the lists instead were somewhat my invention, but just an alteration of things he was doing. Yeah. Well, so I was worried I was going to sound pompous asking you about this, but now I'm, I'm less worried about it. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> reading, reading Aurora, one of the things that sort of came to mind for me um, in terms of the language use uh, was a device that James Joyce used in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, um, where at the very beginning, you know, you, you're, he's got like a toddler. And so there's sort of a toddler's grasp on language. 
and then he gets it, as Stephen grows up, the the language gets increasingly complex. And uh, Ship um, is sort of the primary author of this text within the text, the actual yeah. ship that everybody's on. And there's a moment where um, at the very beginning, there's sort of Ship is trying to figure out how to tell a story. Um, yeah. And then that sort of improves um, the quality of storytelling improves throughout the book as Ship seems to get the hang of it. Yeah. Um, what what inspired that for you? I mean, what was sort of the genesis of that idea? Well, um I love it that you mention uh, Joyce and, and Portrait because the, the now you can never do a, a, an adult rendition of a, in, a child's point of view without invoking that first the first great sections of Portrait. And certainly, I start with Freya. I want to be the child's point of view, which you know helps with exposition as to how the starship works, because I can keep it simple and keep it to the main things that a mother would explain to a daughter. So that was useful. And then with Ship, once I decided that the AI was the narrator, it made me laugh to think about a narration as an algorithm because it isn't obvious what to do. And so the ship has to sort of reinvent the history of the novel. So there I was thinking of early, I mean, early novels are quite sophisticated already, of course, but thinking of camera eye point of view, that the, there's no reason why the AI should speculate about what anybody's thinking. So you can't really do. Uh, free and direct style or be inside people's minds. And the 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 AI is pretty um, meticulous that way in not speculating. So I was stuck with this somewhat awkward, I wanted to tell the story well while also indicating that we had an awkward storyteller there. So it was, it, it made for a lot of uh, humor, I thought, for me. And then Luckily, as the story went on, the situation developed such that the the narrator, the AI just gets more involved and can talk about its own mentation as an actor within the story. So it becomes kind of a first-person novel and then even a stream-of-consciousness novel in the, that sixth chapter mm-hmm. where, where clearly the AI is just used to things and used to the level of narration and getting better, like you said. So this was a great pleasure for me. I, I mean, it was amongst the the most fun for me in telling this story. Uh, and it gave me a lot of tools for uh, making things shorter, for making sure that I swiftly got on to the next point of the story. How do you mean? Well, the, it's because the AI is trying to summarize, um, it can kind of blast through. And it, 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 remi- it was always reminding me, don't, You've got more story to tell. Don't get too caught up. And also you can't go inside people's heads. So that the, say the method of, of uh, 2312 or the Mars novels where you're uh, free and direct or limited third, third person limited where you're inside one character's head or privy to their thoughts but to nobody else's thoughts. I use that method a lot. But in this case, and it slows you down because it's sort of like Swan or Wahram's point of view in 2312. So, um, you know, that gets... Um, that I wanted to be faster than that in this novel and the computer being camera eye point of view just made me be faster. Yeah. And I mean, that in and of itself, I think would be the setup for any of a number of um, books, but you actually have something else going on as well, which is equally ambitious. The story of the um, first attempt to make a colony beyond our own solar system. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, I, I worry that I'm going to spoil this for people who are spoilers, sticker, sticklers, but I actually personally am not one. Um, I don't mind knowing that Anna Karenina gets thrown under the train before I read the book. Right. Um, so I'm just going to pause for a second and let the f- folks who uh, worry about spoilers sort of tune out for a little bit. Yeah. But uh, down. Yeah. 
Okay, but now that now that they're gone, um, what what happens about halfway through is um, you know uh, there's a landing and people go out to this water world, and then they discover they're not alone, and not only are they not alone, there is something that is potentially poisonous to them there, uh, and they're sort of stuck um, between. Uh, the proverbial rock and hard place, right? Because there's the planet that is the water world that almost certainly has other life that maybe is not good for us. And then there's the rocky worlds that you would then have to terraform at extreme cost over a long period of time. Um, and so it's, and so the ship decides to turn back. Uh, the people aboard the ship after um, some political turmoil uh, go back to Earth. Um, right. What sort of led you to to that conclusion? I don't think it's a bad one, but it's something that I don't, recall seeing in a lot of um, the science fiction I've read. Right. I'm hoping this is a new story in a couple of different ways. Um, And it's following up on the recent discoveries that we can't figure out whether there's life on Mars or not, which really made me think. And then I began to think about the notion that we are biomes ourselves as individuals, that the 80% of the DNA in us is not human DNA. And uh, that, therefore, this idea that humanity is meant to spread to the stars um, may be really wrong, that we may be expressions of Earth and never be able to live anywhere else. So it was developed out of thinking in 2312 about the sabbatical, where you have to come back to Earth one one year out of every seven just to stay healthy for reasons that are just correlations rather than causation. In other words, we don't know why. But it seems to be true from the statistics, and people will generally follow statistical evidence if they, because they want to live longer. Right. So uh, all these thoughts began to make me think the idea of humanity going to stars is maybe a mistaken 19th century idea, a 20th century idea, whatever, that it's simply flatly wrong and impossible. And the way I would put it in terms of the other planets is this. They're either going to be alive, in which case we have a terrible problem. Or else going to be dead, in which case we have a different kind of problem because of the length of time it takes to terraform is longer than we can live in little tin cans. And then if we can't tell if it's alive or dead, we have a terrible problem still. We just don't know which kind it is. <laughs> right. So, so, there, so there's, no good, there's no good option because planets are either going to be alive or dead or, or we can't tell. And, and so there is no good option. If you, the only good option is to come to a planet that is a water world that is also dead. And they may be very, very common because we just don't know about how frequently life starts on water worlds. Um, the assumption would be that it will always start that because we're not nothing special. But we don't know that for sure. But even if you had such a world, it would be too far away to get to. The starship can't get there and, um, uh, and keep people healthy and alive in it. Because the whole exercise of the long-duration, uh, multi-generational starship, the, the longer you look at it, the less you can believe in it. Right. So this, I wanted to tell this story. I wanted to make sure that, um, that, well, it seemed like a new story based on the latest scientific findings. And I also wanted to kind of um, smack the science fiction community with this notion that had, we haven't properly examined one of our core ideas Right. I mean, like one of the things that I really enjoyed, um, <laughs> again, this is this is speaking as a science writer, um, but what was the um, the divergent evolution, um, you know, the ways in which, um, 
you see the, the different rates between the larger scale creatures like humans and the smaller scale creatures like bacteria and viruses um, and, and even, you know, uh, the variations across the biomes um, because you run into this problem, right, where you need to have um, you need to have enough things and enough people that you don't have the islanding effect. But right. you need to also um, have a small enough thing that you're sending into space that you can, you know, get it off the face of the planet and then decelerate it onto another one. Right. Um, and and so, you know, the, the problems that sort of arise with that I thought were really well dealt with. Um, I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is, you know, <laughs> maybe this is a silly question. How come this isn't something that we've, we've seen before in these sorts of stories? Well, I don't think it's a silly question. It's a good question. Uh, and it's because it's a little mysterious. Um, I think there's a lot of slippages in science fiction between science fiction and fantasy. And very many science fiction ideas are really fantasies given a gloss of, of, um, of scientific uh, realism for the sake of bolstering the story's reality effect. So like what Colbert would call truthiness. Right. So um, time travel, the, that's not going to happen. But I've written a time travel story myself because it's such a great uh, story space. So there's a difference between a good story space and something that really might happen in the future to humanity. And there, there's no – you don't have to make a value judgment here because there's many a fantasy story and many a science fantasy that makes for a great story. But um, it makes another good story to talk about what would really happen if we did one of these things. And that's sort of been my – one of the things that I've often done is to say to, uh, to a common science fiction idea, what would it really be like if we were really to do it? And so there you get the Mars novels. And um, in some of my projects, that's what I'm doing. In other projects, not so much. It sort of depends on the idea. But certainly I have a tropism towards a kind of uh, – reality effect and towards realism. I like, I think the general public likes science fiction that they feel uh, rings with the sense of, ah, yes, this could really happen. And the more fantastical it gets, the less likely that you can find an audience that's outside of the community. And I'm a, I'm a science fiction patriot. I'm a member of the community and I love the community as a community. But as a literary effect, I like this realism. And so this is and I like crashing ideas and being controversial. Um, and this is certainly going to be, you know, doing that. Yeah. Um, although I, I noticed that you, I, I'm pretty sure that Aurora is an Asimov reference, right? That's uh, It is. Yep. Um, the Naked Sun, I think. That's right. I, and I had not been aware of this and was doing research on Tau Ceti that I was reading about Tau Ceti and one of the Wikipedia articles about Tau Ceti itself says, ah, oh, this is where Asimov's naked sun was located and i said how fantastic because i had forgotten that and so i wanted to make a reference because i love asimov and and i think he was a wonderful um uh, writer and political thinker yeah i mean it's it's very much in, sort of in touch with the history of um science fiction in that way i think uh obviously very deliberately um because you know i i, I feel like if you're doing something as radical as this you need to uh, maybe sort of acknowledge the folks who came before you and, and your place in the community before you <laughs> yeah. scrap yeah. some of the ideas and, and start something new. Well, I, one thing you have to say immediately is that there's no um, invalidating um, Heinlein's universe 
and then also Aldous's uh, nonstop that was called Starship in the States. And then also Gene Wolfe's The Book of the Long Sun, that's simply a spectacularly great novel, and it's inside a uh, long-duration starship that is really, really big. And there's no reason to um, make objections to the, um, the, the reality problems because, in a way, Wolfe has solved them by going really slow and really big. And then when he gets to the Blue Planet and Green Planet, which are – the book of the short sun, well, the problems there are really gnarly. He certainly has not dodged the problems of what would happen when you arrive somewhere. Right, of course. So I I guess I'm just um, throwing a monkey wrench in, into the whole uh, problem set. It'll be one more story to add to that tradition, and I think it'll become part of the conversation, which is really something science fiction is always doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of the end of the book um, – where we see Freya starting to build beaches and surfing um, sort of harkens back to a kind of environmentalist take, the idea of preserving Earth as it is, because in some respects, it's, it, it is our starship. <laughs> yes, yes. I, that is an important point to make, I think. And also, it may be our only starship and the only place where we can be healthy over the long haul. That, that's just, um, to me, that's becoming more and more a, a valid possibility that is going to have to be considered that we can go everywhere in this solar system and set up scientific stations but they might be manned like antarctica is manned which is to say human but you know what i mean um scientists and and um, um people who keep the place going going there for a while and then coming back to earth and even in antarctica they talk about going back to the world um nobody lives down there all the time for their entire life they they go down there, they love it dearly, they spend seasons down there and usually spend a you know, decade or two of their lives, and there's a few e- lifers that go back every season. But mostly people um, are rotated in and out, and that's what I think space might be for us, is a very exciting Antarctica. Yeah, I mean, that that seems to make sense to me. It certainly makes more sense than um, the idea of sending a ship with generations of people who haven't necessarily agreed to be on the ship who are born there and are just sort of in limbo while, <laughs> while yeah. waiting for something that may not even work. Um, there's a scene towards the end. I think it's in a, I think it's a press conference. In fact, um, where Freya gets really angry. Um, yeah. Yeah. when she realizes that these missions weren't expected to succeed. Right. Right. I think at that point she has the right to be extremely angry. And uh, I hope that's a real needle in the eyeball, uh, it, which is the kind of what I my name for a certain sentence or scene that is um, that is a poke to the consciousness of the reader. Um, I hope that will stand out that scene, because it, it, given everything that's happened to her and that happened to her mom and to everybody else, um, her burst of fury is really, I think. Um, well justified. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly understandable. I mean, she's at that point lost a lot of people she's loved. Right, right. She's a survivor of a trauma of a prison of a prison ship, and so like those prison hulks that they used to throw debtors in in the Thames or or sending off to Australia or whatever. She's been a prisoner her whole life and is very badly adjusting to freedom, as often happens. So um, I like that last chapter a lot. For one thing, I was freed of the the computer's uh, point of view as the narrator and um, by shifting to present tense and allowing myself the free and direct style and going inside Freya, it, it was a 
bookended. The first chapter and the last chapter are like bookends in a different point of view and a different narrative mode. And um, I'm not saying I'm a better narrator than the AI, but it was nice to have that difference and that freedom. Yeah, I mean, and the present tense also makes her response to the earth much more immediate, I think. Right. Um, which is yeah. one of the nice things about about switching modes like that. Yeah, I've distrusted present tense and used it sparingly in my career, but it certainly has a sense of immediacy and the you are there and anything could happen, including death and on the spot. So there, um, I notice it becoming more prevalent and fashionable in certain uh, um, places, and I've seen it used um, beautifully by Hilary Mantel, who just shifts in and out of it uh, seamlessly and and seemingly at will, and she's a tremendous narrator, a tremendous novelist. So I've been thinking more about uses of present tense. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's very powerful. Yeah. Um, so besides Hilary Mantel, who are you? Who are you reading? What novelists are you reading lately? Well, I'm always going back in the canon to tell you the truth. Uh, so I mean, I'm still finishing my Virginia Woolf project, and I, I read um, uh, Daniel Defoe and. Uh, Joseph Conrad, I'm reading George Eliot. So this is a little bit English major stuff. And uh, they always are there for people to poke around in and find who, who you love. In terms of contemporary work, I've, I'm testing out this, this French novelist, Fred Vargas, who is a woman archaeologist who's written a detective series that I take it to be more Inspector Magray uh, uh, by Simenon because it's a, a police uh, chief in Paris. So there's mm-hmm. no, no avoiding the comparison. But it's as if uh, Simonon were writing on LSD. Um, it's a really spacey, um, metaphysical, bizarre, and not the realism of McGray, but some something weirder going on there. I'm not even sure I like it, but it is super interesting right now. That's great. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I don't think I've heard of those books. Right. I ran into an article, a good one, in the London Review of Books about her work. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting enough to check out. And I remember very well, 20 years ago, I ran into a review article about Patrick O'Brien and uh, alerted me to Patrick O'Brien. And and boy, that was the discovery of the 90s for me and for tons of other people. Uh, so I, I do try to keep up, but, but it, there's so much out there and there's so much of interest. I would also mention Ian MacDonald, the North Irish um, science fiction writer. Uh, he's tremendously good and kind of a new discovery for me, even though we're contemporaries. Um, so, yeah, just read a lot. That's what I would recommend to everybody. <laughs> I think everybody loves most their own discoveries. Uh, and then a tip that you follow up that turns out to be congenial is is also good. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, it's one of the things, actually, when I when I get a chance to talk to somebody whose writing I like, it's one of the reasons I ask them what they're reading. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. I'm always looking for that next tip. Um, so I guess what I'm what I'm curious about, um, you know, this book is coming out. It's your end, aside from, you know, the publicity is is essentially finished. So what's next for you? Well, I am returning to uh, this is a kind of a collaboration with my editor, Tim uh, Holman of Orbit, who's been so uh, good for me because he's so stimulative and creative himself as an editor. And so in, you remember perhaps in 2312, they briefly visit New York and Manhattan is kind of drowned. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, those scenes. Yeah, well, I'm going to do a whole novel in a drowned Manhattan. And it's not the same world as 2312, but it's the same city and the same effect of Manhattan as Super Venice. So I'm having a blast. Um, I'm raising sea level. It's rather shocking. Um, uh, 
what it the implications of that make for an entire uh, you know, novel in itself. And so it's bouncing a little bit off of things that are in 2312 and even in Aurora with the rebuilding of the beaches mm-hmm. and a higher sea level there too. Um, I think we're condemned to a higher sea level, so it's worth thinking about. So it feels like a realism again, but also very, very exciting because people will cope and um, Manhattan will stay supremely interesting and mind-boggling. So I'm having fun. Yeah, I'm on to the next one. And it'll be fun to have Aurora come out, but it's kind of nice to have it come out as something that I'm completely done with and it's sort of in my past. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else I should be asking you that I'm not? Anything you feel I've missed? Um, well, I would like to lay claim to another new thing in Aurora, which is, and this is a huge spoiler also, and so I only want to just say that the way that they managed to uh, rescue themselves, um, uh, the, the sort of runaway starship effect, mm-hmm. is something that I worked out with friends at NASA and with uh, my friend Carter Scholes doing at, um, you know, astronomy programs. And so the year of the book is picked in order to have the big planets in the position that they're in so that my, my trick can work. And I'm thinking, I've never run into that before. It may be a new, a new idea in science fiction. And since those are so rare, and since I'm an English major, and since it's kind of a techie idea, um, I'm, I'm, I think it makes a good scene in a good kind of final stream of consciousness, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, uh, set piece mm-hmm. for, for my ship. So we're going to so, we're going to call it the KSR effect. Is that what we're going to do? <laughs> well, no, I hope not. But, <laughs> but, but at least it's a at least it's a new story to tell. And yeah. that's that is another thing that I'm proud of in that book. Well, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Stan. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, a, a complete pleasure. I, it, um, I'm really glad we did it. And uh, thank you. Anytime. So that's our show. Um, We'll be back in about two weeks with a new episode. Uh, We're every other Wednesday. Um, You should feel free to write and review us on iTunes. And if you haven't subscribed already, um, well, maybe you should do that on (laughs) iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Not to peer pressure you or anything, but uh, we've got some cool stuff up our sleeves. And uh, once again, I'm Liz Lopato, the science editor at The Verge. And I'm Emily Yoshida. And uh, we'll see you back again here in two weeks. Bye.